And I'm going to set that up a little bit this morning with this message about forecasting uh, our future. And uh, just to give you a little feel for it, this is sort of a combination of a, a State of the Union address and a planning family vacation. Uh, two things that never go together, right? Um, so there's an excitement in this uh, as I think about some of the things we're sharing. That's the planning the va family vacation part. And there's a soberness to this in terms of the State of the Union part. And Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will weave these two things together. So let me pray that he'll do that. We're always so dependent upon you, Lord, to take these attempts by human beings to explain your beautiful, flawless words in a way that makes sense in our time. Do that right now. For the glory, I pray, of Jesus Christ and no one else. Amen. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 16. I believe the text is also printed in the bulletin. Acts chapter 16 was the place, well actually the book of Acts is the history of the Christian church, the first 30 years of the Christian church after Jesus was resurrected. And we stumble across in Acts chapter 16, the gospel, Christianity reaching a little teeny Roman colony called Philippi, from which we get the book Philippians. And it was actually Matt who started us in this chapter some time ago, so we are revisiting it. And um, I really think this is a, uh, a place where we are trying to follow, as a church, Philippi's lead here. And it's always important to keep this in mind when you're reading a part of the Bible that is history and not direct teaching, you have to be careful to not take description and turn it into prescription. That said, there are some things that are happening here in Philippi that are a pattern that are happening throughout the entire book of Acts and those patterns we can look at as something God intends to be repeated in all times by all people when it comes to his church. And I want to try to point out what some of those timeless principles are from these patterns. The first thing we're going to see here is God's people are being led by the Spirit. So let's jump into verse 6 of Acts 16. Uh, it says they, speaking about Paul and his traveling companions back in verse 1 of chapter 16, they went through the region of Phygia uh, and Galatia, having been forbidden to speak the word in Asia, kind of a phrase. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, you don't need to get out your maps to figure out what's, being, what's going on here today. We're just doing a little bit of a flyover. But it should be pretty obvious, right, from uh, verses 6 and 7, they're a, moving, they're a moving car, and uh, they tried to go one way, and the Spirit of God prevented them. They tried to go another way, and it was as though the Spirit of God was closing doors in order to funnel them to where he was opening doors. There was a high sensitivity here to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll be candid with you. 
It's easy as a pastor in our time to think of running a church like you run a Chick-fil-A franchise. You know, how can I position the church to where we can improve our numbers? Uh, and that's always a temptation. And, and sadly, without wanting to, churches wind up competing against one another for customers in a constantly shrinking market. That significantly affects the church. But what we see in the book of Acts here is not a proven market strategy to grow the church. We see a proven sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what gives us hope, and that's what gives us direction. We, especially as a congregation, but even more as leaders of that congregation, we are praying for the leading of the Spirit, we are waiting on the leading of the Spirit, and we are expecting the leading of the Spirit. When we get off that path, we wind up creating wonderful plans that God may have nothing to do with. Uh, and so what we do is we make note of what are the strengths of Red Cedar, what are the gifts of Red Cedar, what are the burdens God has given his people in Red Cedar, not the trends necessarily, but what are the, what are the particular burdens unique to this uh, congregation? Where is God opening doors and where is he closing doors? So that's the first thing we see is this idea of a deep desire to know the leading and of the Spirit and to seek the Spirit. Uh, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why we're having this uh, Wednesday night, talk about old school, prayer time uh, here in the middle of Lent. One of the things we're going to do, among the other things, is we're going to be singing songs, but we're going to be spending some time in small groups praying for the Holy Spirit to lead us, praying for the Holy Spirit to confirm where we think we're being led and continuing to pray for his clarification as we move forward. So the, being led by the Spirit is one thing, and then seeking ripe fruit. Look at verses 11 through 15. So we set sail from Troas after figuring out we needed to go to Macedonia. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down, we spoke to the women who had come together, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. By the way, that is a beautiful sentence on conversion. There's got to be people here today that came for no other reason than to hear this one sentence. I, I mean, this was in my script, sorry. I just, I just think I need to say this. Uh, here's this woman, Lydia. She's got an orientation toward God, but Jesus Christ is not yet Lord in her heart. Uh, she's, she's not sort of connected the dots, and suddenly God does something. By the way, none of us stumbled upon Christianity. God sought us, opened our eyes, and lo and behold, Jesus is the answer to everything that I've been looking for. And that's what happened here to Lydia. And may God today open your heart to pay attention what, to what he is saying. Okay. 
And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed up upon us. Now, it's often the case throughout the Bible here that uh, Paul has this habit of doing certain things when he goes, this, Paul's this missionary in the book of Acts, and he has certain things that he does when he goes into these different towns. Uh, he, he looks for synagogues, for example. He's a Jew, so he naturally looks for Jewish synagogues. These are people who know the most about the God of the Bible. So he goes to where he expects ripe fruit. And when he comes to a place like Philippi, where there's not a synagogue apparently, he finds this other place of prayer. Uh, Jesus, when he first sent out his uh, first missionaries in Matthew chapter 10, said, go to the homes where you're accepted, where people are open. He called them people of peace. And so it's, it's natural for us to look for ripe fruit. Now, in my time alone, my generation alone, the attitude toward Christianity in this country has gone from apathy, which was the standard response for several generations, now to antagonism. It's much, much more difficult to talk to people. I remember being in a church where on, during the Sunday school hour, we went out and knocked on doors uh, to talk to people about Jesus. I mean, who would, who would dare do that today? And by the way, that's not a great method today. I'll just tell you that right now. But, um, but here's the thing. The back door of people's lives is wide open for the gospel. By virtually every data point, we are living in one of the worst times of relational suffering that's ever been known in human history. Every mental health data point continues to indicate this. There is high levels of anger, anxiety, and abuse like never before in the most developed country in the world. Uh, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago our problem with speed. We continue to up the speed of life practically every 10 years. We are traveling so fast right now, I can't imagine that we can ever find God in that culture. He tra God travels at an incredibly slow speed. The noise, the constant information, misinformation, truth mixed in with misinformation, the darkness that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm not talking about just the oppressive pressure that we feel to shut our mouths about sexual ethics. I'm talking about something else that's just as bad, maybe arguably worse, affecting Christians, and that is this almost whole-scale throwing off of traditional authorities. We suddenly feel like it's okay to do what's right in my own eyes, regardless of what all traditional authorities have told us for generations. And not only that, it, there's the problem we all know, don't we, of political tribalism. Somehow we've turned Washington, D.C. into a tower of Babel. We believe the lie that that's where the center of power is. And if somehow our tribe can get a hold of that center of power, we can make all the difference in the world when it has always been the case that the church of Jesus Christ is the center of power. Always has, always will be. Lives are unraveling. And these unraveled lives are becoming, in the words of verse 13 here, a place of prayer. This is where people are ripe. This is where their false gods are letting them down. And the door is open for us to start conversations. The next thing that I see here in terms of just the, 
the way we're following Philippi is this idea of embracing suffering in 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gained by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners, by the way, the story's not about the girl. Um, it is in one sense she was delivered. It's about the owners. When her, when her owners, that in itself is a horrible statement, isn't it? Saw that the hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. That's called manipulation. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There's an interesting pattern in the book of Acts between this concept of the gospel and financial profit. Lo and behold, a few things change. So in chapter 4, we see this record of God's people and their great generosity. And then we see these new Christians, Ananias and Sapphira, trying to cheat God and they get struck dead. A couple chapters later in chapter 8, there's Simon the magician who thought he could buy his way into the kingdom. A couple chapters after that, uh, chapter uh, 13, uh, Eliamus is another magician who wants to manipulate the pro-council because these missionaries are threatening uh, the profitable connection that he has with them. And then there's our chapter here, 16, a couple chapters later, chapter 19, we see this idol-making industry that suffers an economic downturn as a result of the gospel coming to this place. To put it simply, when the church is being the church, other salvation sales drop off and persecution picks up. It's a constant pattern. And this brings me to the hard stuff that I have to say this morning. The stuff that I don't like saying, but I think it needs to be said. It's our theme verse, uh, one of our theme verses from Philippians. This is from Philippians chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that I might, so Paul says, whether I'm there or not, this is what I want to hear of you. That you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is who every local church is. This is who we are. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. And here's what I need to say. Our opponents are impacting our striving together for the gospel. Our opponents are not primarily people persecuting us for our offensive positions from the Bible. Yes, some of us are experiencing that. That's not our biggest opponent. 
I would argue and have been for many years, not just here, but throughout the American church, our biggest opponent is prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. The same problem in the book of Acts in terms of how it affects us. It's primarily captured in two ideas, consumerism and individualism. Consumerism, think about your entertainment. Think about um, your family activities or other activities if you even don't have a family. Think about your job choices that you make, the lifestyle that you choose. Think about where you decide to physically live. There's probably lots of good choices in all of that stuff. It's not usually about what we're watching in terms of entertainment or what we're doing in entertainment. It's the bigger question we tend not to ask. How do all these things impact my family, my church family? So, for example, when it comes to entertainment and individualism, and individualism is terrible because it tends to put the word my in front of everything. These are my choices. This is my stuff. This is my property. This, this is my freedom. This is my family. These are my beliefs. And what happens with consumerism and individualism is they eat away the available margins in our life for kingdom work. And they not only eat away the margins in our life, they have a tendency to turn all of us into customers so that your allegiance and commitment to a local church family is directly related to your customer satisfaction of that local family. Now, I'm not saying this is true of all of us, nor am I saying this is a deep problem for all of us. I'm just saying it's part of the DNA of the American church, and it does affect us. What we need to be asking is how can we become an immigrant community rather than a sort of commuter suburbia? How can we become an extended family on mission? That is a great challenge for us uh, to be able to have that high priority of the family. So, uh, uh, do I have time for this? I'll tell you very quickly. I'll try to do this in less than a minute. I bumped into a pastor this week, some guy I hadn't talked to in quite a long time of a church most of you would know here in town. And we just found ourselves kind of sharing what the last three or four years have been like. And we talked about the, the, the navigating through the uh, political nature of, uh, of church communities where people have stronger political convictions than they do with biblical discernment. Uh, we talked about the online world now that's changing how people do church or whether they even do church or whether it is even, whether it is even church. We talked about the problem of competing voices. Uh, you know, you're just, a, a pastor is just one itsy-bitsy voice in a sea that capture our attention left and right all the time. And we, we together were lamenting, no, there's been a record number of pastors who said, I'm done. You know, on the dishcloth that's gone through the, the disposal, just uh, garbage disposal, just too many times. Uh, and uh, admittedly, you know, we were just having fun crying over each other. But, um, <laughs> but there was truth in that. There was some truth in that. So, people in Philippi, listen, I know it's hard to stay committed. 
know it's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe, but to suffer for him and to imagine that Paul, a prisoner, had been involved with? What an invitation. <laughs> so let me just make uh, a couple quick comments here about I really believe that Philippians and our time and the book of Acts are calling us to up our capacity to suffer. That's why God gives us joy. Joy, persevering joy, increases our capacity to suffer. And this is a time in the history of Christianity when we must up our capacity to suffer. I'm going to make a couple suggestions. That's all they are. They're just suggestions. They may not even be good ones. You may have better ones, but here's, here's a couple. Think about choosing what's best for this family, not just what's best for your family. Think about what's choosing best for this family, not just what's best for your career. Think about, what's, think about choosing what's best for this family and not just your dreams happiness. Do you know when a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, walked into the nation of Israel and they walked around and observed for several weeks and months and they saw the geography of Israel? In the midst of the 12 tribes was the most glorious structure around. It was called the tabernacle. God himself was in the center of the community. The very geography spoke to the reality of God and his people. This was the superior structure over all other structures in the village. It was a place where the best fabrics were used. It was a, it was a place where people donated their precious gold. It was, it was a place when people harvested their land. They brought the first fruit here. That tabernacle was a place of glory and gratitude. It basically said over and over again that God is the center of life in our community, which is why for many, many years in this country and throughout Europe, the highest hill in most villages, guess what was on it? A church, right? So that reality, that God is the very center of our community. Uh, so another way you can think about upping your capacity service of, of, of suffering is to dive into what I call messy volunteerism, something that's going uh, away, but something you can get back into. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that we are to witness to the world, not just through our words, evangelistic words, but also our works. When the church is being the church and not outsourcing mercy ministry to the government, we are a great witness in our world. But that, of course, involves suffering. Our small groups, our small groups should look more like AA meetings uh, and less like Bible Jeopardy. Uh, they should look more like mission strategy meetings. They should have purpose to them. It should be a place where we, people are repenting and asking for help, and that's normal rather than abnormal or rare. It should be a place where uh, people are reporting. The Spirit is reducing shouting every other week at least we should be hearing the story of God has done amazing things this week that should just be the norm our small groups should be places where uh, people who never attend attend see I got you with that what's he talking about 
It should be a place where we're praying about lost people. And we're, it may be that only, there's only one lost person we're all praying about with someone else. And for several weeks and several months, that lost person, it's like they're there every week because we're talking about them, praying about them, strategizing about them. God may be calling you in some way to up your capacity in order for us to become this immigrant community on mission. Now, I have to say this every single time, though. There are some of you in this room, there are a number of you in this room who need to decrease your capacity in one sense. You're doing too much, okay? You know who you are, and if you don't, talk to me. Um, uh, But others need to up their capacity. Lastly, we need to be come this, and we are, this attracting community of contrast. Verse 25, it was about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bounds were unfastened, and when the jailer the doors were opened, he drew his sword, killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried with yourself here and so the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them what must I do to be saved believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night washed their wounds he was baptized at once he and all his family. And they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, it's no surprise, is it, that uh, this guy calls out in verse 30 and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We all know that desperation and drama and miracles have a way of opening up the coldest hearts around, right? Right? But there's something that gets missed here that I think is important, and it's in verse 25. They were singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, maybe I'm, I'm off track here. I can't say this for sure. I think the jailer was listening to him too. I don't think he could help. And even before the miracle happened, the Spirit of God was softening this jailer's heart, perhaps. I mean, after all... Why did he even say what he did in verse 30? Where did he come up with that? If they hadn't been practicing the gospel in terms of song and singing. I don't think they were intentionally having an evangelistic service. I think they were simply being believers in the midst of suffering. And that's the attracting, contrasting part. And By the way, Philippians chapter 2 says, In the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, shine like lights. And I want to tell you something. After saying those hard things, I want to say this to Red Cedar. You are. You are like shining lights. I, in 12 years of being here, I've heard this almost every other month from new people who visit this church. This is one of the most friendly places I've ever been to. The hunger for the word in this church, if I got off track, I'd be the first to get fired. And that's a, that's a praise to you guys. Uh, you have a hunger for the word. There is a stability in this church. There are people who've been here for ages. There are leadership 
in this church that has been unified in a way that I've never experienced before. I do not take that for granted. Uh, I mean, listening uh, to Jeff today in his uh, prayer, just the way he, he just reminded us of the legacy and the history of who we're attached to all the way back, and yet how, how it's continuing on here. Uh, just that happens so frequently. We started a biblical counseling ministry in this church where the uh, demand is far outpacing the supply of counselors. We've gotten involved in a recovery ministry uh, here in this church uh, because, again, we didn't seek that as out. God brought us people like, like Eric and Marvin here that helped us open that door along with other things. We have one of the highest percentage of people attending small groups of any churches that I have been a part of. Uh, there are some lifelong friendships that have come about as a result of these small groups. We are a church that prays. There are people that have been praying for 30-some-odd years together in this church. There are men that meet here every Thursday morning and pray for all of you. Uh, our elders pray through the whole roster uh, almost twice a year sometimes. Uh, if you ever have a problem in this church that requires some hands-on service of guys who will come and do stuff at your house... We have teams that have been doing that for years. Our giving has been amazing in this church. We are dedicated to kids in this church, primarily because of Matt and Lauren's legacy that they'll leave here. Our global missions has exploded in this church in the last couple of years. Talk to our global missionaries. If I could pay attention every week like I have this week, I saw six examples this week of amazing examples of self-sacrifice from this congregation. And last night, what was that all about? <laughs> I mean, there was a concert here uh, that I came to because, to be honest, I felt some obligation. I, I wish I could say that I, I came out of pure motivated desire just to be a great guy. Um, I was so glad I came. It wasn't just a concert, Sky Peterson and our own, Nick and Maria. Yeah. Perhaps it's more, says Dr. Seuss. Perhaps it's the first annual young artist in the dead of winter concert to which all our coworkers or relatives and neighbors can be invited to. Just an idea. So... How does all this play out in our future? Okay, here's a quick flyover. This is from our elder retreat the other day. By the way, these are three goals that are the same goals we've had for a number of years now. I don't apologize about that. We're just continuing to refine them. We're continuing to make progress on them. We want to continue to increase our community proximity, one of the hardest challenges before us in our sort of commuter world. We want to do that by some of the changes we want to make to this facility. I realize we're being very counter-cultural uh, here, not counter-cultural, but just this is not normal. Usually churches expand a facility because you're busting at the seams. We're trying to change our facility because we want to increase proximity, this extended family experience. We think that's a high missional need for this church. So that's what's driving so many of the changes here. We want to continue to get to a place where we can have meals here every other month. 
uh, in this church because they're a way for us to continue to experience community. We want to continue to find ways to change our small groups and increase some of that sort of AA meeting mission strategy stuff I'm talking about. We, we had a men's ministry that sort of kicked off last year with that camping trip, and they're continuing to think of new things to do, uh, not just camp out in the snow. Uh, and uh, our women's ministry wants to continue to grow beyond just the brunch and the retreat and think about are there some focused kinds of discipleship and shepherding women can be doing with other women as they've done in the past. We want to continue to prioritize the next generation. You heard Abe talk about that a, a while back, and I, I, I love the fact that uh, as God sends on Matt and Lauren, they'll leave behind this commitment and really... Uh, Matt's the one who put the next generation on my radar. How can we continue to do that? Uh, we've talked about things like sponsoring a school, maybe even starting a school, uh, or just doing a Christian scouting ministry, something that would have implications for the next generation. A sort of all-hands-on-deck call for people to prepare the next generation. We want to fan mission flames. Uh, in this case, there are things like the Endeavor House, the recovery ministry. Imagine this, you know, I was out there yesterday, I'm interacting with a guy who's a little younger than me. Uh, seven months ago, he gets out of prison after having been there for 35 years. That's an opportunity to suddenly get face-to-face -face with a guy like that. I mean, it, he is one complicated guy that uh, I could see people wanting to run from him. But I say, men... There are opportunities out there. And by the way, they're opening a women's house. Women, there are opportunities out there. Uh, are they frightening? Do you know what you're doing? No, but they're a blast. Uh, and you ought to jump into them. Um, so that's just uh, one thing that's going on. Uh, we're going to start having evangelistic Sundays. A while back, Brian did a message on Is Jesus the Only Way? And it triggered something in, in the elders in terms of, uh, wouldn't it be great three or four times a year to have a message that's super accessible to someone that's just kind of wondering about Christianity? And that became part of our rhythm so that when we had the Christmas brunch, uh, the very Sunday after we did that, when we did the Fall Fest, the very next Sunday after that, we had that kind of a message and it became part of our rhythm as a church. One of the things that I want to say, though, about all this is... Uh, this all comes under the header of two other things, and with this, we will close. We've been using the term biblical wisdom. We want to create a family of wise biblical people. The reason we're reaching the next generation is not so much because we want to protect them from a terrible world. We want to prepare them for a terrible world. The reason we want to have proximity is not so we can have a bunch of friends. We want to have proximity because we want a bunch of deep discipleship. That's what biblical wisdom is. And it's going to mean, all of these changes are going to mean we're going to need to increase our staff. Not just because of the naps uh, leaving a big hole behind, but even if they weren't leaving, we'd be advocating for some of this. Churches aren't what they used to be. Used to be you could support an entire ministry structure in a church through volunteers. That's just not the case today. We're going to need to part, uh, hire part-time staff 10 hours a month, 20 hours a month, 30 hours a month to strengthen our infrastructure for some of this ministry to happen. And God's provided the resources for us to do that. So, a lot of things on the horizon. But let me 
Let me do this as we prepare to take bread and cup and explain how this ties in with the reason we do and have communion today. But first, I'm going to invite the worship team and others to come forward. Again, if you're visiting with us, this table is open to all who call Jesus their Savior and their King. We'll come forward in the center and we'll take bread and cup and in just a moment I'll lead us in taking bread and cup together. Didi read for us uh, this passage from Hebrews 10 and there were four commands in there, hold fast, stir up, meet together and encourage. So think of hold fast and encourage as bookends. God's people need a lot of cheering Hold fast, encourage one another. To do what? To gather together and to stir one another up. The word literally means to strategize together. So we are, this is who we are. We are a cheering community who gather together to provoke and strategize on how we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and communion. Every week we take communion, you know what we're doing? We are repledging our allegiance to our king. We're reminding ourselves of who is king, not only of us, but of the whole world. And so even as you come today, I invite you to do that, to repledge yourselves not only to Jesus, but to each other. Let's take a moment, and then I'll pray, and then you come. Father, we praise you for the gift of your son in the form of a sacrifice. He was a king who first became a slave so that we who were enslaved to sin might one day reign as co-reigners with the king himself. And so I pray that as we come now, you would pledge our hearts back to you again. We would reenact, as it were, this covenant commitment we have with you in our pledge not only to you, our King, but to all your subjects who are here today, we pray in Jesus' name.